The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. A couple of announcements before we get started, just to remind you, in case you blanked out and you don't watch the screen ahead of time, There will be no Bible class this week on either Tuesday night or Thursday night. If you show up, nobody's here. The rapture has not occurred. You have not been left behind. You have been ignoring the announcements. Now, we have one other piece of good news for those of you who didn't catch it in the slideshow for the announcements, and that picture taken of Ulan, Dinara, and Lara is not the one that's been up there. That is a new one. They are sitting in a park bench in Berlin, and that picture was taken this morning. So that is a, another benefit of the modern age in which we live. Still need to continue to pray for Ulan, and uh, their situation is certainly far from settled. There is going to be a hearing on their case in Germany on July the 19th. Now, there's a number of things we need to pray for and need to be concerned about there, and uh, not the least of which is their safety, but we need to pray for guidance that Ulan can, uh, and others who are counseling and advising him, can uh, dis- determine what his future is. I mean, here's a family. You just put yourself in this situation. You've had to flee from your home, from everything that you've had for hopes and dreams. You know that any place you go back there or to your native land or to a neighboring uh, country may put your life and the lives of everyone in your family in danger. And so you're going around homeless virtually uh, for a month or two or three or four. We don't know how long this will take. And in that process, you have to make a decision as to where you want to end up when the process is over with. We have to, a decision needs to be made within the next week or so, I'm sure, whether he should stay in Europe, come to the U.S., or two or three other options. And so he has to make a life-determining decision based on very little evidence and very little information and just a lot of prayer and trust in the Lord. So we need to continue to pray Uh, for them, pray on their behalf. So keep them in prayer. Also remember that Dr. Meisinger, President of Chafer Seminary, will undergo surgery tomorrow afternoon, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, California time, which is, uh, what, about 5 o'clock in the afternoon here. So please remember him in prayer. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship with the Lord. Uh, Scripture teaches that Christ paid the penalty For all of our sins, that penalty was paid in full. The last thing he said on the cross was to telestai, paid in full. So when we trust Christ as our Savior, our sins are paid for. The blood of Christ continually cleanses us from all sin. Yet, nevertheless, in terms of our experience, in terms of fellowship, when we sin, we are out of fellowship. 
we break fellowship with our Father, we don't lose salvation. And as the psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And so we have to admit or acknowledge our sins in the privacy of our priesthood to God the Father. And at that instant we are forgiven. We are cleansed of all of our sins. We are restored to fellowship. And we recover the sanctifying, filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit, which is the means for our spiritual walk and our spiritual growth. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're ready to focus, concentrate, and study the Word. Let's pray. Lord, we're indeed grateful that we have you to come to ever-present help in time of trouble. And, Father, we are deeply concerned about the condition that Ulan and his family find themselves in. We continue to pray that you will uh, sustain them, that you will open doors, you will direct their paths, that Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 will be a reality in their lives. We pray that you would strengthen them spiritually, strengthen their faith, that this would be a positive time of spiritual growth despite the fact that they are surrounded by such uncertainty, instability, and the tremendous anxiety related to their personal safety. We pray that you would give wisdom to those advising him that uh, we can uh, make good decisions, wise decisions for his future. Father, we pray, too, for Dr. Meisinger and his surgery tomorrow. We pray that that would go well, that what they find will not be malignant but will be benign, and that he will be able to quickly return to his duties as president of the seminary. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct us as a congregation as we seek a building, that you would give us wisdom in those decisions. Father, above all, we pray that you would give us a heart for you, a desire to serve you, to learn your word, to make it the highest priority in our life, and that we may not forget that the number one reason that we have been saved is for our advance in the spiritual life and our witness in the angelic conflict as well as our own spiritual uh, maturity that we might glorify you in time, that you might be glorified throughout all eternity. Now, Father, we just pray that you would guide and direct us as we study your word this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We are now in the fourth of the seven letters to the churches in Asia. The seven letters to the seven churches are evaluation reports that the Lord Jesus Christ is giving to these congregations. Each one of these particular letters has several parts. The first part is a commission. This is the opening address of each letter, the address to each specific congregation. We have studied the congregations in Ephesus. We have studied Smyrna, Pergamum, and now we come to the fourth, which is the congregation in Thyatira. This is by far the uh, most spiritually regressive congregation. This congregation has compromised itself. The last church we looked at was the church in uh, Pergamum, and they were a compromising church. They had not hit rock bottom yet. This church, by the way, isn't quite at rock bottom, but they're much 
further advanced in their departure from the truth of the word and from their accommodation to and approval of not only false doctrine but uh, moral licentiousness and antinomianism within the congregation. So this is a, uh, a lengthy letter. It's longer than those that we have seen uh, previously, but it is also one that is uh, very strong in its condemnation of this particular congregation. So as we see in each of these, there's the commission followed by a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, and nearly all of these indicate some attribute that, and some element that was pictured in that initial vision that John had when he was on uh, Patmos. As he was there, suddenly he heard a loud voice behind him, and he turned and he saw seven uh, golden lampstands, one standing in their midst as if, as the Son of God, the Son of Man, and he began to describe the various uh, physical attributes that he saw of Jesus Christ as the Son of Man. Then there is a section of commendation. Remember, of these seven, there are five that have elements of commendation and praise but two that have no commendation. Those are the worst two, and we haven't uh, studied them yet. They are the ones that are in the worst-case the worst case scenario. Then there is a section of condemnation. And just as there are two that have no commendation, there are two that are very positive in their spiritual growth, very wonderful congregations filled with mature believers who are not compromising, who are uh, filled with love for the Word of God and love for the Lord Jesus Christ, advancing to spiritual maturity. Uh, but there are, the other five all have some element of condemnation some element in their, the life of the congregation where they are, as a congregation, uh, approving or sweeping under the rug some element of disobedience to the Word that has become culturally acceptable within that congregation. Then there's a correction uh, identified by the command to repent, and as we studied this in the past, it means simply to change this is one of those words that has been so abused by people who come from an ascetic or a legalistic background. Repent does not mean remorse. Repent does not mean to feel sorry for your sins. Repent does not mean to give up certain uh, practices per se in order to gain divine approval. Repent is a challenge to change the way you think. The Bible is clear. You change the way you think first, then your overt behavior. Now, that's always a challenge to people of a legalistic or ascetic mindset because what happens is they want to look at those external sins and practices and say, okay, stop doing that, stop doing that, stop doing that. We can't have that kind of behavior around this church. And what happens is you create a superficial uh, adherence to a form of spirituality without dealing with the true internal issue, which is the control of the sin nature. And that always leads to arrogance, because when you're trying to change your life on the basis of your own, of the flesh, on the basis of the same power and ability that any unbeliever has to clean up his life, to change himself to some degree, then you always are feeding the lust patterns of the sin nature. And the sin nature thinks about what it's achieved 
on its own without depending on the Word of God. And man would rather clean himself up on his own terms than have to do it the way God says to do it. And that's the orientation of the sin nature, and that's the challenge. We would rather do it the, uh, the, what appears to be the easy way, that superficial way, than to go through that difficult process that is outlined in the Word of God, learning to change on the basis of what God the Holy Spirit does internally, because that is predicated upon a study of the Word. And the last thing most people want to do is genuinely, truly study the Word. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had people come to whatever congregation I was teaching in and say, you know, I always thought I knew what Bible study was. Then I listened to you for an hour and realized I didn't have a clue. I had a pastor tell me that not long ago. He had been pastoring for 20 years. He said, I thought I knew the Bible, but I've been listening to you for 15 minutes, and I realize I need to quit. I don't know the Bible at all. And, and that's the problem, is that we live in an era when people are dumbing down everything. We dumb down education to kids in public school. We dumb down education uh, in, in colleges. We dumb down expectations in corporations. And we dumb down so many different things. And when you come to the church, now all people want to do is praise and worship. Let's sing for 30 minutes, and we'll all get our... our endomorphins up, endorphins up, and we'll all feel good about everything, and, and then let's just have a 15 or 20 minute sermonette for Christianettes and I'll go home, and we forget that the purpose for the local church ministry is to teach the Word, to equip believers for ministry, and to give them the ability to exchange the human viewpoint cosmic thinking in their soul for the divine viewpoint thinking in the Word of God. And that's not easy. And you can't do it 30 minutes a week. You can't do it an hour a week. You can't even do it in three hours a week. You need to spend time every single day refocusing your thinking on the Word of God. That's why we have tape ministry and Bible classes out on the Internet so that people can download, listen to other things other than just what I'm teaching right now. It's important to be in the Word, not only listening to somebody teach it, but you also need to be reading the Word for yourself. You need, it is the Word of God that has power. The Word of God is what? Alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, I don't think that verse says that the teaching of the Word of God in a sermon from a pulpit is alive and powerful. Did it say that? No, it said the Word of God is alive and powerful. Jesus said, pray to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy Word is truth. It's the Word of God ultimately that has power, not because there's some innate, internal, mystical power there, but because it's the truth. Because there is an absolute form of truth that conforms to the thinking of God. And the problem with most of us here is that our thinking has been conformed to the world so profoundly that we don't even recognize it. We're blind to it. And we need to be challenged on a day-to-day basis to learn to think biblically and not to think like everything, like everybody around us and everything around us. But it's not comfortable. And so most people, rather than having to go someplace where they have to concentrate and think and study and all that hard stuff, they'd rather go feel good and convince themselves that everything's great because they went someplace and everybody was happy and felt good and talked about praising Jesus and they really didn't know what that meant. So 
repentance falls in that category. We changed it today. But it's a prescription for recovery, for change, changing the way you think. And that's the foremost idea, repentance. And then there is a call to listen and apply. Let those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then there is a challenge to the overcomer. This is the person who successfully works at changing the dynamics of their thinking. Now, this isn't a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps change. This is a change that's done through the filling of the Holy Spirit, walking by the Holy Spirit, and being filled by the Holy Spirit And when you're in fellowship with God. So it's not just an intellectual exercise of learning facts about the Bible. It is an opportunity to learn how to think biblically, and then when the opportunity presents itself, thinking biblically so that that changes overt behavior and habits and practices which results in spiritual growth and advance as we apply the word. So this is true for every one of these particular uh, short evaluation reports. Then in verse 18 we read, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, And the angel of the church, as we studied before, is like a heavenly court officer. This particular angel has a responsibility to the Supreme Court of Heaven to record the operation of the integrity of the Lord Jesus Christ as he works out his justice within these various congregations. And so it is going to be a record in the heavenly court of how these churches responded to the condemnations and the commendations of these evaluation reports. So it's addressed to the angel of the church because the role of the angels we see throughout the whole book of Revelation is to record information and to execute judgment on mankind. And so that fits the role of the angel. It, that's why it can't be the pastor. Angelos is never used anywhere of a pastor teacher. So this is not simply a human messenger, but has to do with that specific angel in heaven. So to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things says, and then we have a threefold description relating to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Three things he's called the Son of God. Number one. Number two, he has eyes like a flame of fire. And number three, his feet are like fine brass. Well, let's begin with an analysis of the passage. And we see that this is written to the angel of the church in a fourth location now. In Thyatira, you see its location in the yellow circle on the map on the screen. Uh, Thyatira is about 50 miles to the southeast of our last location, Pergamum. The city was located in a long, flat area between the Caicos Valley and the Hermas Valley, two rivers that uh, flowed out of this particular area. We see that it's located in the Roman province of Asia, which was on the western end of what is today modern Turkey. The location, as you see on this particular slide, is where the yellow dot is indicated up there. 
And you see it has a strategic location between two areas, a pink area, which is indicated uh, by the control of Lysimachus, and then a white area, which is indicated by uh, Seleucus. Now, we're going to have to get into a little ancient history here in order to understand what is happening, but at least with the map, you have some idea of what I'm talking about, so I'm going to leave that up there so you can at least orient yourself uh, geographically. The city of Thyatira was initially founded by the Lydian kingdom. Now, that's not on this map, but the Lydian kingdom was in central Turkey. And Creasus was the king of Lydia at one time and took it to its largest uh, expanse and founded the city of Thyatira, but it had no real significance or meaning. It was simply a small garrison town on the borders of the Lydian kingdom. Uh, later, the, after Alexander the Great died, his kingdom was divided among his four generals. Cassander took over the area of Greece. Lysimachus took over the area of uh, Macedonia, or as it's known today, Macedonia and Thrace, and over into the uh, western or northwestern part of what is now modern Turkey, just south of the Black Sea, in the area surrounding the Bosphorus. And uh, then Seleucus took off the lion's share of the empire. He had the majority of Turkey, the central and eastern part of Turkey, uh, modern Syria, Lebanon, on down into the Palestinian region. And as you can see from the map, uh, the area south of there through Palestine and down through North Africa and Egypt was controlled by the Ptolemies. And the last of the Ptolemies was the beautiful Cleopatra. And there was always a tremendous power struggle between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And that ultimately centered in the area of of Palestine. That's what, what uh, First and Second Maccabees in the Apocrypha is all about, the Maccabean revolt that took place in the 3rd century B.C. But that's not part of our study. Now, the Seleucid Empire extended east across uh, Persia and what later became the Parthian Empire as far as the Himalayans and the Indus Valley. So he took the lion's share and his successors were not able to maintain their control and eventually the eastern elements of his empire uh, were separated and you had the rise of the Parthian Empire in the east which is in the area of Iran and modern Iraq. The area we're focusing on is this area right here and there was a power struggle between the Seleucids and the uh, kingdom founded by Lysimachus. And Lysimach, uh, or the Seleucids established a uh, garrison and settled a large population in Thyatira. So it would serve as a buffer to Lysimachus and to his encroachments. And then you had another event that took place, and that was around 320 to 340 B.C., or excuse me, 310 to 320 B.C., you had the, the revolt of, uh, in Pergamum, and the per Pergamanians under Philoterus set up their own kingdom. And so you had a tug of war going back between the Pergamanian kingdom and the Seleucids, and at some points 
uh, Thyatira belonged to one side and other points to another side, and so they went through a period of instability from approximately 300 B.C. down to 190 B.C. Uh, when they were strong, Thyatira, uh, when, uh, excuse me, when they were strong, when Thyatira was strong, then Pergamum was weak, and when Pergamum was strong, then Thyatira was weak. Now, the valley in which it existed, and this is about all we have left of uh, Thyatira today because it was overrun so many times that the ancient city was destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed, rebuilt, many times not only in the ancient world but down through the early periods of of this era. So there's just a few archaeological uh, remains for us to study. Now, it wasn't simply a military town. There was more to it than that. It was located on major trade routes. Several major trade routes intersected in this location as goods were moved from the interior to the coast. And so with any, uh, any town on major trade routes, it became a major trade center and attracted merchants and money. It also attracted a number of skilled craftsmen, and one of the major factors in this city was the number of guilds that you had. There were a variety of guilds for wool workers, linen workers, uh, garment manufacturers. They had a garment district, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. And these guilds were very important for the uh, social structure in Thyatira because that's where all your social life would revolve around the guild that you were in, just like you might uh, relate that to modern country clubs or social groups or churches where people are involved and everything in their social life revolves around that church or country club or whatever social group they're a part of. And in the ancient world, each one of these guilds had a patron god or goddess. And so when they had their social functions, they were held at the temple of this god or goddess who was the patron saint. So if you're a believer and you are a silversmith or you're a bronze smith or you're a wool worker or linen worker and you're in one of these guilds, and every month or so they have a big party and it's important to go to that party and it's important to uh, rub shoulders with other people you you work with and to uh, develop business contacts and all of those things. The place that that happened was down at the, not down at the local pub, but down at the local temple. And you would go to the temple for a polis or you would go to a uh, temple for any number of other believers uh, or uh, any number of other gods or goddesses such as Artemis, then Tyrimnaos, who was an alter ego to Apollo, and or uh, Sambathi, which was a their local version of the Sibylle uh, Addis mystery cult. And you would go there and participate in orgies and participate in eating the, the meats that were just sacrificed to the gods and goddesses and getting drunk and uh, getting involved in temple ritual prostitution. Now, if you're a believer, you recognize there's immediately a problem with all of this because if you're going to have any level of success in business, then suddenly you've got a major conflict because you can't go to these uh, social uh, engagements without compromising certain things. Well, the way out is just to say, 
that it doesn't really matter. After all, all I have to do is confess my sin the next morning and I'm back in fellowship, right? Well, that's a major problem because then you end up in what I call the ping-pong effect. And that is you're in and out of fellowship, in and out of fellowship, in and out of fellowship, in and out of fellowship. There's no growth taking place. You're just bouncing in and out of fellowship. And see, the point in the Scriptures that Jesus made in John 15 is that if we're going to advance in the spiritual life, it means we have to abide in Christ. That means staying in fellowship. Maximum amount of time in fellowship. Not just saying every time we get the opportunity to sin that I'll just... uh, I'll just confess it. Now, the great principle of grace is that you don't have to feel guilty about sin. The great principle of grace is that there's complete and total forgiveness because Christ paid for the sin. The great principle of grace is that, yes, we are going to sin. We are going to continue to commit the same sins over and over and over again. And there is always recovery. There is always forgiveness. God always meets us where we are. And it doesn't matter how much we fail or how many times we commit the sin. There's always forgiveness. There's always recovery. But that doesn't mean there aren't consequences. That doesn't mean that we didn't uh, waste time in terms of our own spiritual advance and spiritual growth. And this has always been the struggle among Christians through the ages, is how do you balance a gracious attitude towards spiritual failure with the reality that you have certain mandates in Scripture to stay in fellowship. And so we have to learn that we have to be gracious without becoming licentious or antinomian on the one hand, and we have to maintain strict standards for our own life without becoming legalistic in the other direction. And so there always seems to be this this push-pull in the Christian life, and we can only take care of our own Christian life. You can't look across over here and look at somebody you know and say, you know, they just aren't quite with it yet. Don't worry about them. You've got enough on your plate. You've got enough to worry about in your own spiritual life, and I do too. And we each have to go through this, and we can only do it under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So they had some major social issues to deal with. Now, this was a a, a commercial center. It was a major trade center, and one of their most renowned products was a purple dye. And it was a different purple dye from what was usually available. It was made from the madder root, and that made it a much less expensive cloth, uh, much less expensive than the purple dyes based on the murex dye that came out of Phoenicia. And this is why in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, when the Apostle Paul first came to a town in Greece named we usually call it Philippi, but the modern Greeks call it Philippi, came to Philippi and went down by the river outside of the city, and there he found a group of believers uh, praying, or at least a group of God-seekers praying, and one of them was a businesswoman by the name of Lydia, who was from Thyatira and was a dealer in purple. And so she apparently had a business, an export business, and she traveled throughout the ancient world uh, looking for customers and selling her purple dyes. And the speculation is, because we have absolutely no other information, the speculation is that she returned uh, to Thyatira 
and witness to others there, and it was through her ministry eventually that a congregation of believers was started. The other option, uh, which is probably just as true, is that when the Apostle Paul uh, went to Athens, um, excuse me, went to uh, Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey, he spent a couple of years there, and it was at that time that he sent out uh, teachers and pastors and itinerant uh, missionaries throughout all of that province of Asia. And they took the word and they planted churches probably in all of these locations, plus a number of other places that aren't listed in the seven letters to the seven churches. And it was at that time that, that these uh, churches were established. Now, what we see in the background study of Thyatira is that they had a situation that is increasingly common to the circumstances that we find in the modern 20th century church. And that is the struggle to live your Christian life in the midst of a hostile surrounding culture, a culture that is uh, officially hostile to Christianity and a culture that is socially hostile to Christianity. And their solution to the external pressure was to compromise, and they had compromised very deeply. Uh, And there are those within the congregation who are positive, who have advanced in their spiritual life, and who have been very successful. But there are also those who have held to that same pernicious doctrine we've run across already, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which was a form of antinomianism and licentiousness. And in this particular verse, it says that there were some, or in this particular uh, section, there are some who had partaken or knew the deep things of Satan. And we're not exactly sure what that is, but it it certainly indicates that they had uh, absorbed and assimilated some profoundly false doctrine, and this was acceptable to the rest of the congregation. They just thought, well, whatever floats your boat, that's okay. How postmodern of them. Uh, See, this is the same problem you always get in paganism, ultimately is a destruction of any kind of absolutes. This is why there's such a battle over origins in our schools and the study of creation versus evolution versus intelligent design. I don't know if you've been following it in the newspapers, but there's a battle going on in Kansas right now over the teaching of intelligent design in the classroom. And evolutionists, diehard evolutionists and Darwinists, recognize that intelligent design uh, is, is just one step closer to the teaching of creationism because it teaches that there must be an intelligent designer behind the universe. It can't all just be a product of time plus chance. And so their position in the temple of modern science is slowly being uh, eroded. And so there's always this conflict because the unbeliever doesn't want to come face-to-face with the fact that there is a God to whom they will be accountable. That's the bottom line. The unbeliever knows in the depths of his soul that God exists. And he knows that he's going to be held accountable. 
We know that from Romans 1, 18 through 20. The unbeliever knows he's going to be held accountable, and he's rejected God, and he continues to suppress the truth by means of unrighteousness in order to avoid coming face-to-face with his own mortality and accountability. And the more he suppresses, the more hostile he is to anyone who comes along and says there's absolute truth. And as our culture has slipped its anchor from its Judeo-Christian heritage, we are adrift upon a sea of relativity, which is always what paganism produces. It produces relativity. It produces a moral relativism, and that was as true in the ancient world as it is today. So we live in a world that has little understanding or tolerance of someone who stands firmly for moral absolutes. What we have is the pseudo-concept of tolerance, which really means approval in modern parlance. If you haven't figured that out, that's what people talk about when they talk about being tolerant. We have to be tolerant of homosexuals. We have to be intolerant of all the different religious beliefs, which means we have to accept them and approve them. And, of course, everything is... is uh, uh, we can approve everything except biblical Christianity. If you are trying to hold to, to one truth, that there is only one absolute truth, one God who has revealed himself in the Bible and ultimately through the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, then you are anathema. You're the enemy. And more and more we're running into this in our culture where Christians are the bad guys. And especially if you are a white Christian, as one politician put it recently, you are the worst of all uh, violators. Now, just as this impacts us today, and most of us come out of the uh, morass of moral relativism, we struggle with that. You know, there was an era in our country because there was a holdover in values from Judeo-Christian ethic where the culture as a whole had a tendency towards self-righteousness. But that's no longer true. Now, you may find pockets of it here or there, but that's generally not true. Now we live in a, in a culture of licentiousness and antinomianism. And so that's the culture we all grow up in. And we get bombarded with those ideas from the things we watch on television, the things we read in uh, media, from our peers in the workplace. We, we are, are pressured to show approval of everybody's lifestyle no matter what it involves. Now, now the attitude that we should have is not that we approve it, but we, we tolerate it. I'm not going to judge the uh, homosexual I work with any more than I'm going to judge the liars and the thieves and the lazy people and the irresponsible people and the power-hungry people and all the other sinners I work with, including myself. But that doesn't mean I'm going to uh, whitewash anybody's particular uh, sinful behavior and say that it's good, and that's what uh, these, many of these groups want, is for us to just validate their sin. I sure wish people would validate my sins. No one ever seems to come along and say, well, you know, it's just okay to do those things that you do. That's socially acceptable now. Well, maybe we can all get together and start some little political action group for each one of our individual sin nature trends, and and maybe we can get some action there. 
Well, we have to deal with this issue today as it's manifest in our churches, and that's this issue of compromise with the culture around us. Now, I want to give you a couple of examples, and I'm not beating up on these groups, but they are true examples of cultural compromise. One is in the Pentecostal church, and Pentecostalism has compromised with the worldview of mysticism. And that's been true whether you look at that form that we have in the modern Pentecostal church or whether you look at the form that manifested itself under the false teaching of a man named uh, Montanus back in the middle of the second century A.D. It is a form where you are saying that God is directly communicating to me, speaking to me through various revelatory gifts uh, apart from the Word of God and may even contradict the Word of God. We also have compromises with legalism in the form of lordship salvation, which is permeating so many churches today, and a lot of people don't know what it is by that term, but basically what lordship salvation teaches is that if you claim to believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and then you uh, reject him or you continue a lifestyle of sin after that, then maybe it wasn't true faith and you weren't really saved to begin with. It's an assault on the grace of God. It's just another form of, of legalism and attempts to control local congregations. We also have false doctrines of amillennialism, covenant theology, replacement theology, uh, the influx of postmodernism into our seminaries and into just the thinking of pew-sitting Christians. Now, all of those are areas that seem to pressure us to compromise with the culture around us. Now, the church at Pergamum was compromising. They weren't really fighting the battle here anymore. They were just going to put up with the people in the church and accept them that held these views. But what we have in Thyatira is that that they've gone a a couple of steps further, and they are uh, actively embracing those who are violating the Word of God, and this would be comparable to what we find in many of the churches, the mainline denominations that have been influenced by the 19th century Protestant liberal theology. That's the accurate term. And this is the idea that the Bible isn't the Word of God. That is what we mean by it, the Word from God, revealed by God to man, the objective source of all absolute truth but that it's simply another religious book written by human beings uh, recording their various experiences with what they think is deity. And now the Bible just becomes another book, and it's just another moral code, no different from uh, the moral code of uh, Confucius and the moral code you may find in Eastern religions or the moral code you find in any number of uh, different religious systems. And it's just a matter of picking whatever moral code floats your boat, and we're just going to warmly accept and approve of everybody. And that's what you see today in many, many mainline denominational churches, especially those that are members of organizations such as the World Council of Churches, who have truly sacrificed all sense of absolutes. So the challenge for us is to maintain our biblical orthodoxy, both in terms of our academics and our intellectual thinking, but also in terms of our practical life, that we are living consistent with what we say we believe.
So this is addressed to the church in Thyatira, and it makes a reference, a threefold reference to the Lord Jesus Christ as he appeared in Revelation chapter 1. These things says the Son of God. That term is the new term. It wasn't used in chapter 1. There John said, I saw one like the Son of Man. But here he says, the Son of God. This is the only place in the book of Revelation where we find the title Son of God. So we need to pay attention to that. That's the first thing we note, is that he is the Son of God. Second, he is one who has eyes like a flame of fire. And third, he has feet like fine brass. Now, what does this mean, that he is the Son of God? Well, as we have studied in the past, this is based on a Hebrew idiom. The Hebrew idiom was that if you were had certain characteristics in your life, then, then you would be said to be the son of that characteristic. It's an adjectival expression so that if you are foolish, you would be called the son of a fool. If you were wise, you would be the son of wise men. If you were a murderer, you would be called the son of a murderer. It's not talking about your ancestry. It's not talking about your parentage. It's talking about the fact that you are expressing the characteristic of this noun that is in the genitive position, son of something. So when Jesus is, in, is called the Son of God, it is saying that He is God. When it says He's the Son of Man, it's emphasizing His humanity. It says that He's the Son of God, it is making a claim to full deity. And the Bible is filled with these claims. They didn't originate in the middle of the second century out of uh, various theological meetings. They didn't, it didn't originate at the Council of Nicaea in 325. It originated from the very lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. He claimed to be the Son of God. Those around him indicated that he was the Son of God, and he is assumed to be and declared to be the Son of God throughout the New Testament. In fact, this phrase, the Son of God, which emphasizes his deity, is used 45 times in the New Testament. But it's used only this one time in Revelation. It's used in John chapter 1, verse 34, by John the Baptist, when he announces to the crowds who this individual was that he had baptized. He says, I myself have seen and have testified... Again, this is a legal courtroom uh, testimony or witness. I have testified that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist announces that at the beginning of his ministry. Also, you have one of the disciples, Nathaniel, when he first meets Jesus of Nazareth, says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. And notice, he immediately equates this with the Davidic Covenant that he is the king of Israel. What tremendous insight Nathaniel had right off the bat showed that he was a, a tremendous student of Old Testament scripture. John 3:18, we have the promise that is either stated by Jesus or by John. I'm not sure which. If you read through those first 20 or 24 verses of the Gospel of John in chapter 3, I challenge you to. to uh, Tell me where Jesus stops speaking and John starts speaking. It's not clear from the text. Jesus is clearly speaking in John 3.16, I think. But I'm not sure if Jesus or John is saying this, but 
The verse reads, he who believes in him is not judged or not condemned. He who does not believe has been judged already. Now, I want you to notice something there. Just look at that part of the verse. What's the condition to avoid judgment? Belief. Is it any good works in there? No. Any ritual in there? No. Just says, he who believes in him is not judged. He who believeth not has been judged already. What's the condition for condemnation? Not believing. If you're here tonight and you have never believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, then you are under condemnation from the Supreme Court of Heaven right where you sit. But Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sins, and the only thing that God requires of you in order to have eternal salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. The verse goes on to read that he is condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That is belief in his character, his mission, his position, and his purpose, which was to come to the earth in the first advent and to die on the cross for every single sin in human history, and that includes every sin you commit. God in his omniscience knew every sin that you would commit in history. You can't commit some sin he didn't know about. You can't commit some sin that's too great for the grace of God. Jesus Christ paid for every single sin, so the issue isn't cleaning up your life. The issue is trusting in Christ for your salvation. And at that instant, you have eternal life because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is the only one who could pay the penalty for our sins. John 10.36, Jesus recognizes that this is the point of contention with the Jewish leadership. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I, Jesus is speaking, because I said I am the Son of God? See, Jesus claimed to be deity. Now, you only have two options, three options here. Number one, when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, either he was the Son of God or he's not the Son of God. He's either telling the truth or he's lying. Those are the only two options that are open to you. You can't say, well, Jesus is a great moral teacher, because if he's not the Son of God, he's an immoral liar. So he's either who he claims to be or he's somebody else. He said, I am the Son of God. Now, if he is who he claims to be, then we have to recognize that he is everything that the Bible says he is. But if he's not, then he's either an an intentional liar or he's a self-deceived liar. If he's an intentional liar, then he has uh, brought the greatest hoax on all of humanity. But if he's self-deceived, then he was psychotic, and he belonged in some sort of uh, insane institution for the mentally insane. John 11:27. This is when uh, uh, Mary recognizes that. Uh, Jesus is who he claimed to be. She said, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Notice, she connects the Old Testament concept of Messiah to the term Son of God. You are the Messiah, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Romans 1.4. Now, this is where we get into some really interesting stuff here. For those of you who haven't been showing up on Thursday night, we're getting into some fascinating Old Testament connections in Hebrews that are important to understand. And Romans 1.4 says, And he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to, according to the Spirit of holiness by means of the resurrection from the dead. Now, those of you who are here Thursday night, we stopped just before we got to this verse and the next verse. 
Because what this verse and the next verse we're going to look at here, Acts 13.33 are, are references to the declaration of Jesus as my begotten Son in Psalm 2.7, which is quoted in Hebrews 1 verse 5. It's a statement of the deity of Christ and His Sonship. Acts 13.33, Paul is talking. He says, God has fulfilled this for their children in that He has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Now the context of Psalm 2 is talking about the Davidic Sonship. We went through that. But it also indicates divine Sonship. That He's the Son of God. Today you are my Son. Who's my? That's God the Father. He is God the Son. He is the Son of God. But He is also the human Son of David. And, and we see that in Acts chapter, I mean in Psalm 2, because it emphasizes the fact that uh, earlier that He is the Son that I have installed on Mount Zion. And He is the King the king who is to come. And the king who is to come is the eternal king that was promised to David that the seed of David would culminate in an eternal king. And the very concept there implies this merger of a divine, eternal king and a human king. So we get into some fascinating connections here. Acts 13.33 talks about our references, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. I have another interesting reference related to the Son of God coming from the mouth of demons in Luke 4:41, And these demons that are cast out are shouting, You are the Son of God. But He rebuked them. He would not allow them to speak because they knew Him to be the Messiah. Isn't that interesting? Another connection. Son of God is almost a synonym for Messiah, the Anointed One. Now, who's the Messiah? The Messiah is the Son of David. Peter recognizes this when Jesus asked him, Who do men say that I am? And, and uh, Simon Peter says, uh, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Mashiach, Messiah, the Son of the living God. He connects those terms together. Now, in our study of Revelation, what we've seen is that Jesus is portrayed and indicated to be the Son of Man in that original vision in John, I mean in Revelation chapter one, and then and that term derives from Daniel chapter seven, which is an image of one who is coming in judgment, one who is coming to establish a kingdom. We went through that just on Thursday night in our study of of uh, Hebrews one verse five. But then we also see that there was a connection here with Psalm chapter 2, where Jesus Christ is referred to as my begotten Son, which is an indication of His deity, that He's the Son of God, but being installed on Mount Zion as my King indicates a human king. And look at what happens in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, following the announcement that He is my God's Son. Psalm 2, 8, God says, Ask of me... And I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Now that's this pause we're in right now during the church age. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father in session. And he is asking of the Father. And the Father says, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. That hasn't happened yet. 
It happens at the second coming. That's what we're studying in Hebrews 1, 5. And then look at Psalm 2, 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. What's going to happen when Jesus returns? He's going to execute a rod of iron operation in order to bring all of mankind under submission to his authority. Psalm 2.10 says, Now therefore be wise, O kings, these are the kings and leaders of the Gentile nations, be instructed, you judges of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Now, we looked at Psalm 2, 9, that he would come with his rod of iron. Now, look at what happens at the end of this particular evaluation report on the church of Thyatira. Just look down to verse 26. This is the promise to the overcomer, the victorious believer. He overcomes and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. Where does that come from? Psalm 2.8. I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. Right out of Psalm 2.8. This is the promise to all believers who are advancing in the Christian life. This is the promise to us if we take note of all these uh, warnings in these epistles that challenge us to live the Christian life, to change our thinking, to grow and advance to maturity, part of what we will have is that ruling and reigning responsibility with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he's pictured at the beginning of this evaluation report as a judge. He's the Son of God. He has the right to judge and to rule. He is the Son of God. He has eyes like a flame of fire. This indicates that they pierce, and the fact that they're a flame of fire indicates purification and judgment. And then third, he has feet like fine brass. This is the same term we have back in Revelation chapter 1. It's not really fine brass. It is a burnished metal, a bright shining metal that has been purified in the fire. And that indicates that the Lord who comes back isn't just God who judges us, but He is the one who entered into human history, who was tested in all points as we are yet without sin, who advanced and was matured through the things that He suffered. He has gone through the fire of testing and has come out qualified to judge us. It is pure Judgment. That's why we get this concept in, in English and American jurisprudence of having a trial by our peers. It comes directly out of the Scripture. So this notion that we should take the Ten Commandments out of the courtrooms just shows historical uh, ignorance and a desire to just remove God. It's a theological statement. It's a statement of doctrinal rebellion and historical uh, arrogance. So the challenge for us is to recognize who Jesus Christ is and to let that impact the way we uh, live, the way we advance in the Christian life. Now we'll come back next time and we'll look at the commendation statement starting in verse 9, which is a fascinating statement and has tremendous... Excuse me. Uh, that begins in verse 19 and has tremendous 
uh, implications for our own spiritual advance and spiritual life with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be challenged by the things that we study. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. The only issue before you is your faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe that he died on the cross as your substitute and paid the penalty for your sins, and that that is all that is necessary for salvation, then you will receive that free gift of God's perfect righteousness, and you will be declared just, and you will be given eternal life that can never be taken from you. But if you try to add works or ritual or anything else to it, then it perverts the faith. It's faith alone, the Scripture says, in Christ alone. And at that instant, you have eternal security, you have certainty, and you have a sure destiny that can never be removed. Father, we pray that we would all be responsive to the challenge of the teaching of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.